If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast, fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. You might think that the Crusades of the Middle Ages were a purely male enterprise. But while that may have been the case on the battlefield, it certainly wasn't elsewhere. Helen Nicholson is a medieval historian and the author of a new book, Women and the Crusades, which delves into the archives to uncover just how vital a role women played in crusading campaigns, in recruitment, support, patronage and prayer. Emily Briffitt spoke to Helen to find out more. So I want to go right back to the start. When did women's involvement in the crusade first begin? At the very beginning of crusading, before we even have the very first official crusade, Pope Gregory VII approached Matilda of Tuscany and asked her and her mother if they would be involved in an expedition he was planning to Constantinople to help the Christians of the Eastern Mediterranean. So, in fact, women were there at the very beginning, and here we have two typical, as it were, women crusaders, in inverted commas, because they are noble women with military resources at their disposal, 
Matilda did lead her own troops in the field, so she might have been intending to take her troops in person, or indeed they would you could appoint a male commander. There was no reason why the leader of the state should have to lead their own troops in the field. In fact, it may be better if they don't, because you can't afford to lose the leader of the state. But as it happened, that particular expedition never got off the ground. However, it is interesting that among the very first people that the Pope approached with this idea of a holy war to support Christians in the Eastern Mediterranean were these two very prominent noble women, very important political figures in Italy who had extensive military and political influence. Then women did indeed join the First Crusade. A number of noble women, I'll come back to those in a moment because the stories about them are quite problematic. And also ordinary women would have accompanied their menfolk. We know about them largely because if their husbands got killed, they were then left in a position where they had to look after themselves and any children they might have with them. The clerics in the crusading army were rather inclined to be condemnatory. Always these women, loose women hanging around you, literally loose. They haven't got a man to be attached to. But the crusaders themselves seem to have rallied around to try and support the dependents of crusaders who'd been killed. And I should mention at this point, of course, there's no birth control that's reliable. So if a man and a woman are going on crusade together, the chances are that she will get pregnant until there will be babies. Um, Albert of Aachen, who's writing well after the First Crusade and first half of the 12th century, recorded women having their children during the crusade and not being able to support them, having to leave them left by the side of the road. I mean, obviously, this is a shock horror reporter. What a terrible thing. These women should never have been on the crusade because they're having to abandon their children. But one feels that this is a position that people would end up in if you're in a long, strenuous march. You haven't got food. You haven't got resources. And suddenly, where is the woman having this child like modern refugees. We've all seen the adverts asking for help for modern refugees who are in this position. She's now having a baby. What is she going to do? The noble women, of course, Albert Arkin definitely thought noble women should not go. This is not something that noble women should have been doing. He has a number of stories in his chronicle about noble women who went on the first crusade and came to a sticky end. Actually, at least one of those was entirely invented. Florina of Burgundy, as the historian Hilary Rhodes has pointed out, seems to be a completely fictional character. However, it was a very good moralising story, the tragedy of the lovely Burgundian princess who died on the crusade, or we don't know what happened to her, and it's such a tragedy, and she should never have gone. And so it was repeated and repeated and repeated. It's repeated still by modern scholars. And Hilary Rhodes says, it, is a, a, it shows why people think that stories of women involved in the Crusades are important and how they grab these moralising romantic stories. People love a moralising romantic story. But she didn't actually exist. Uh, there are, were other women he did mention who did exist, but they're always told with the same tone of, really, these women should not have been there. But the fact he's saying this is an indication that there were women on the First Crusade and they continued to be involved in Crusades right through crusading up until the end of anything we can call a crusade. Even if they're not in the field, they're supporting it with their money, with their other resources, and importantly, because this is a spiritual enterprise, with prayer. So there seems to be a bit of a mix there. You've got the Pope who's inviting ladies to be on the crusade, but also you've got people who are maybe condemning it. Can we say that female participation was actually a wanted thing? There's many different views on this because on the one hand, noble women with resources and not all noble women have control of their own resources. But 
if you have someone like Matilda of Tuscany who controls her own resources, who has her own army, who is a devoted supporter of the Pope, then you want her on side. She can send troops, she can lead her own troops. So late in the 13th century in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Alice of Blois, who had originally been intending to go on pilgrimage with her husband, but he died, she takes her own army out to Acre and she constructs a tower and she builds a church. And these are the sort of women that the Crusades and the Crusader states that the Crusaders set up need, who are using their resources to support the Crusades and support the Crusader states. And the ecclesiastical legal writers writing in the 13th century are very enthusiastic. These are the people that should be going. We're happy to have them along. What they don't want is the general hangers-on who are a drain on the army. And they might, in fact, distract the men. The men might be more inclined to protect the women than they are to fight the Muslims. So you don't want the helpless non-combatant, and that applies to the clergy too. Nobody would say that they weren't important in the crusade. But they're not supposed to fight, and when they do turn up on the battlefield, the professional warriors are not happy about it, because that's just not your job. You're supposed to be back there praying for us. And at one point in the, during the Third Crusade, when Richard Allied has got as far as Cyprus, and is in the process of fighting the, the Greek ruler of Cyprus, and let's not get into why he's doing this, it's quite a long backstory. One of the clergy comes up to him, all armed, on horseback, and says, well, my lord, I don't think we should be engaging ourselves with this. And Richard said, look, you get back to your prayers and your books and leave the fighting to us. He said, what are you doing here? This is, your, this is not your place. So the Pope and those preaching the Crusades try to discourage non-combatants from going on crusade. They'd much prefer them to make a, a financial donation of some sort. And if they wanted to be spiritually involved, well, go and join a religious house and pray for the crusaders there or give money to your local monastery or nonary and ask them to pray for the crusaders. That would be a much more useful use of your resources. However, for various reasons, non-combatants need to go on crusade to support the crusaders. And so they're never able to completely prevent non-combatants from going. So if, if they do insist on going, because they need to accompany their husbands or they're in service to somebody who is on the crusade. So the maid servant has to accompany her employer. Her employer can't be doing without her, for example. Or there are female merchants on crusade selling food and other necessary equipment to the crusaders, so they need to be there. Then they better do something useful while they're here as well. So the women will also get asked to do non-specialised military tasks such as helping to fill in ditches and throw stones at the enemy if you're in a place that's under siege and carry water to the combatants on the battlefield and do all the important extra jobs that need to be done. You don't need military skill for them, so we expect the women to do this sort of thing. And if everybody is having a day of processions and prayer, then the women and the children will also be involved in that, praying to God to help them on their expedition. So there's two sides of it. The other thing about the women's involvement is that the women were regarded as encouragers and comforters of crusaders. So the women are depicted in contemporary narrative sources by commentators as the person that encouraged her husband to go, who encouraged her son to go, who gave him the resources he needed. And one crusader, Stephen de Bois, was writing home to his wife 
in France, telling her what had happened on the crusade. So he obviously values that connection, knowing his wife is at home, looking after his estates, or rather their estates. So in that respect, you need women supporting the crusade because they will look after everything that's going on at home while the rest of the family is out on crusade or the rest of the family remains in the West and they can only afford to send one person. So you have to have the women on board. So there's two sides to this. You don't necessarily want the women in the field. There seems a bit of a liability because the men will defend them and they are not generally trained to fight, but you do want their support. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I think in your book, you just, you describe it as almost the three Ps is uh, the patronage, propaganda and prayer. Could you maybe go into a little bit more about this? The patronage crusading does seem to run in families. And it's quite a few years ago now, Jonathan Riley Smith, the great crusade scholar, said that it seems to be the women who carry this crusading tradition because he noticed that you have one family in, say, northeastern France where they go on crusade and others where they don't. And then there's a marriage alliance and suddenly there's other families going on crusade as well. And previously they never did. And you could understand the conversations that were going on at home. Well, my father went on crusade and my brother went on crusade. I can't think why you're not going on crusade. You're letting the whole family down. So this is part of the patronage. In the book, I pick up a number of cases from the Iberian Peninsula in the royal family of Portugal and Castile and also Aragon, but Castile and Portugal particularly, where it's the 
queen who is always depicted as being the urger, the supporter, the encourager, the one who's raising the money, the one who's coming along to support either her husband or her son. The husband or the son is the one who's actually going out to fight against the Muslims. But it couldn't have happened without the woman's support. And she is depicted as very pious, dedicated to God's work and urging her menfolk on when they're discouraged. Oh, we've been defeated. This is never going to work. No, you must stand strong and fight for Christ. So in that respect, to take one example at the very end of our period, Ferdinand and Isabella, Ferdinand of Aragon is the one who's actually besieging the Muslim cities in Granada to bring the long Spanish war against the Moors to an end. And Isabella is supporting him by sending money and people and coming out herself to see how the, how the sieges are going. And when the Muslims see Isabella arrive with all her ladies and uh, military forces, they're so impressed. They know that they're going to have to surrender because here is the saintly queen who's behind it all. But the woman is almost the saint who is sending her menfolk out to battle. And you can see also how this links into chivalric imagery. What about propaganda then? Propaganda, well, that's part of the propaganda as well. And various examples of holy women in the 14th century who were promoting crusading. Uh, in the book, I talk about Catherine of Siena, a very um, a determined young woman who had decided that what Christendom needed was another crusade. And so she was urging the Pope to go on crusade, but she was not only urging the Pope, but she was writing letters to important political leaders all over Latin Christendom. Even mercenary leaders who most of us would hesitate to approach, but no, Catherine is writing to them as, as their sister, as their female friend. You must dedicate your resources. Stop fighting Christians. Go and fight for Christ. Take, raise Christ's banner. Go and fight the Turks. Go and fight the Mamluks of Egypt. And another example of this female propaganda sent Bridget of Sweden, who was actually Birgitta, is her proper name, who was actually a bit ambivalent about crusading. It has been done for the right motives. She was urging the king of Norway and Sweden, Magnus, to go on crusade against the Rus, against the Russians. But he had to also be expanding the Catholic faith. It shouldn't just be land, it shouldn't just be for riches. And she was a bit unhappy about the way he did it. And the fact that he then retreated when it was clear that he wasn't going to be winning land and riches. And he should have kept on with this because it was essential to win people for Christ. Because, of course, the Rus are Orthodox Russians. And there were also pagans still in Eastern Europe at that time. These, uh, Birgitta was a noblewoman, Catherine of Siena wasn't. And another non-noble supporter of crusading was Dorothea of Montau in Prussia, whose prayers and holiness was a great encouragement to the Teutonic Order who were fighting the pagan Lithuanians, except by the time that Dorothea was urging them and encouraging them, they were no longer pagan, they were Christian Lithuanians. But the Teutonic Order said that they didn't believe in this conversion, but that they were really still pagans at heart. So Dorothea had various visions to support them in their work and warn them of when things were not going to go as they should. And if it wasn't for Dorothea's prayers, this expedition would have been a complete disaster. So another holy woman supporting crusading. And most famously, Joan of Arc declared that she was going to go on crusade. Again, she didn't, obviously. For them, it's a way of proving their sanctity as well, because it's the most holy thing. And they were some of them, these holy women, wanted to go on crusade as well. Not Birgitta, but Catherine of Siena wanted to go along and they would win martyrdom for Christ. 
They weren't actually expecting to fight themselves. So what about the final one? What about prayer? Well, some of this prayer is organised by the church. Formal days of prayer, formal services during a crusade to support the crusaders, for example, during the Third Crusade. And then men and women are involved. And the Pope sent out bulls urging the faithful to have processions and prayers. The men process in this direction, the women will process in that direction. And everybody should be involved in calling to God for his mercy to assist our crusaders and protect the Holy Land and enable us to recover the city of Jerusalem from Saladin. So there were organised prayer sessions organised by the Pope. And then this becomes more developed. So in fact, by papal order, every church every mass in church should include prayers for the holy land and so just by going to church everybody is involved in this prayer for the holy land prayer for the christians of the eastern mediterranean prayer that christendom will once again recover the holy places but also you can buy an indulgence now the way this works and it's pope innocent the beginning of the 13th century who really sorted out the theological logistics of this the way this works is that the saints, of course, were full of, had great virtues. They actually had more virtue than they needed for their, to cover their own sins. So the church has an, an, an excess of virtue. And if you have taken a vow to go on crusade, but you can't actually go, you can pay some money instead to pay for somebody else to go in your place. And some of this excess virtue will then be assigned to you so that you get the advantages that you would have had, the spiritual advantages you would have had of going on crusade without actually going yourself. But then there were also, uh, by the 14th century in Western Europe, confraternities, sort of self-help groups, friendly societies really, formed for spiritual purposes to support their certain saints' days. Um, they might put on a, a play at Corpus Christi, for example. They might have a meal once a year. They support their members in old age. They support their members. They want to go on pilgrimage and they pray for the Holy Land. So at the beginning of every meeting, they will have prayers for the Holy Land. So these things can be done um, not just in church, but also within these um, friendly societies too. So really praying for the Holy Land becomes part of the institution of the church. It's something, if you're a member of the Catholic Church in Europe in the later Middle Ages, you will be praying for the Holy Land and praying for the support of Crusaders. So we spoke a little bit about it earlier, but what about women's support on the actual campaigns? Women didn't usually fight on Crusade campaigns because this the culture to which they belong did not expect women to fight, except in emergencies. But of course, there are sometimes emergencies. And then women would be expected to pick up appropriate arms and armour so that they could fight. Although it was more likely to involve you know, the classic story of the woman putting a cooking pot on her head, the non-combatant wearing kitchen equipment because there's nothing else to hand. So Thomas, brother of Marjorie of Beverly, had told a story about his sister's experiences in the Holy Land. She was in Jerusalem at the time that Saladin was besieging it in 1187. And according to Thomas, his sister put a cooking pot on her head as a helmet and carried water to the defenders on the city walls. So she's not actually a crusader herself. And in fact, at this point, it hasn't become a crusade. But the defenders of Jerusalem would be grateful for the assistance of the women in the city. This is one of the things the women are expected to do, come in and support workers. Then 
again, crusade commentators and those reporting what the end of the crusade afterwards record that the women were on the battlefield during this camp, this battle or during that battle, and they'd brought water, they might have brought bandages, they might have brought food, and they would be standing there supporting the soldiers if the soldiers got tired, exhausted, they would come off the battlefield and have a drink and go back. And normally as non-combatants are left alone, though there was a battle during the Fifth Crusade in Egypt that when the women and the other non-combatants were standing on the edge and the Muslim troops actually attacked the women as well, reported the Christian commentator. And this is very low, but it's an indication of how much how badly the Christians have been defeated because even the non-combatants got attacked and they had to run for their lives. There are various accounts of women assisting in carrying stones, digging ditches and so on. The, probably the most famous is from the Third Crusade, the woman who was helping to carry mud, earth, stones to fill in the ditch around the outside of the city of Acre, which had been captured by Saladin and which the Christian Crusade army was now trying to recapture. And in order to get the stone throwers and other uh, projectile throwing equipment up to the walls, they needed to fill in the ditch. And this is clearly a big job because Acre is a very heavily defended city. And while this woman was carrying stones and earth, she was struck by a missile and killed. So when she's, while she's lying dying, the other Christians run up to her, including her husband. And there's a very touching scene in the not quite contemporary accounts of this. The one that I came across first, which is in Latin, makes a particular point of saying it's her husband she's talking to. Whereas the French account is not quite so emphatic about it being her husband, but he obviously didn't think this was so important. So, my darling husband, she says, I ask you just one last thing. Anything, darling, anything. As he says with tears falling down his face. When I die, lay my body in the earth in the ditch and then it will continue to fight for the Christians after I'm dead. So they do that. And just see the devotion of this woman, says our writer, that she ensured that she would carry on fighting for Christendom even when she was dead. Other stories tell how brave the women are under a rain of missiles carrying things to be used as missiles to the defenders. And again, another famous occasion during the Albigensian Crusade, when Simon de Montfort, the leader of the Albigensian Crusaders, is besieging the city of Toulouse, which had been recaptured by the Count of Toulouse, who was excommunicate as a suspected Cathar heretic. And a stone thrower, which had been manufactured by a local art artisan and was being operated by women, hurled a stone which killed him. The fact that the fact that it was a local artisan and it was women operating the stone thrower was clearly underlined by the person that recorded this to show what a shameful death Simon suffered, and it served him right for attacking Christians, because the most of the people in the southwest of France, where the crusade took place, wouldn't have said that they were heretics, and even those that did say that they were perfecti called Cathars by the outsiders, would have said that theirs was the right form of Christendom and the others were the heretics. So these Christians coming to attack Christians is highly dubious and Simon got everything he deserved. Obviously, this was devastating to his wife and his sons. So we have uh, the other side of this from the woman's point of view, because while Simon is trying to attack the castle of Toulouse, his wife 
and their daughters and other relatives are in the castle trying to defend themselves against the Count of Toulouse. And she will go back to the north of France, this is Alice de Montmorency, to raise new troops to support her eldest son. So it's another thing that noble women did, continually raising troops to support the crusade. There's another one from the Hussite crusade where the Prague New Town, which was occupied by the religious reformers, regarded as heretics by the Catholics, but obviously they believed themselves to be the true faith and the later Protestants regarded them as being the true faith, sort of early Protestants, the Hussites. When they're under attack from the Catholic army, the women are, again, on the walls, defending the city. Well, Prague New Town anyway, fighting to the last, not afraid of their enemies because they're fighting for Christ and finally being struck down by the enemy. They're fighting with all the resources that, that, that there are to hand and showing great courage. The men are very impressed because they are not skilled fighters, because they are fighting purely from piety and determination and not with any assurance that they're likely to win because they're not being trained as warriors. So would it be fair to say that women were just as enthusiastic about crusades and the idea of crusading as their male counterparts? Yes, and I'll say that with the rider. They're just as enthusiastic, but there were also some who were unenthusiastic, as there were some men who were unenthusiastic. So, in fact, when you look at the people who are involved in crusading, you would say that there isn't really a gender difference. But it suited commentators at the time to create one, partly in the line of trying to recruit people for the crusades. So the young man who doesn't want to leave his girlfriend behind. Yes, we know that women are a distraction, but it's your duty not to be distracted by this woman. You must set her aside and go and serve Christ. Whereas, in fact, it's likely the girl was actually encouraging him to go, but he quite wisely didn't want to die. So on a similar vein, were women's motivations for, again, this idea of crusading, were they similar to the men? Yes, they were going for the same reasons to defend Christendom and, if necessary, to die in the attempt. I think they probably would go with less assurance of returning because they knew that they would be unlikely to survive a battle in the battlefield. Although, if you were a noblewoman, when Louis IX of France went on his first crusade, his wife Margaret went with him and she did defend the city of Damietta when Louis was captured by the Muslims far up the Nile. So a noble woman would have a better chance, chance of survival. But she also has the problem I've already mentioned that if a woman is going with her husband, she is likely to get pregnant and pregnancy is very, very dangerous and childbirth is worse. So her chances of coming back are perhaps rather lower than they were for her husband. I would say that Possibly the women had less choice in the matter because whereas the husband would be most likely expecting to fight, she would be going as a support. So if he wanted the wife to go along, she would probably have to go. And if he wanted his wife to stay at home and look after the estates, she probably wouldn't have much choice on that one. Someone has to look after the estates. They could appoint a steward to look after them, but it's always better if it's a member of the family. Again, a number of women went as servants. As I said, they wouldn't have any choice in the matter either, but to say that, they were male servants too. Because women were less likely to have control of their own resources, in that respect, they would have less choice as to whether they went. But the motivation would be the same. 
that they're anxious about their souls, the health of their souls, and they see the crusade as the best way of ensuring their soul's survival after death. What limitations can we say that perhaps women face that maybe their male counterparts didn't? Limitations include that many women did not have control of their own resources. Unless you're a widow or an unmarried woman, in much of Europe, your resources would be under the control of your menfolk. It's still your money and he's not supposed to spend it without your permission. Some did, of course. But she wouldn't be able to say, I'm on crusade, you can stay here. He would, she would need his permission. So that, that would um, be a limitation. Then there are the simple physical limitations. So, yes, there is the problem of childbirth. If a woman is accompanying her husband, the chances are she's going to get pregnant. Uh, for many women, the monthly menstruation is not a pleasant experience. This is not much spoken about. But some women are doubled up every month for four days, and that would be a definite disadvantage when on campaign. She just wouldn't be able to go anywhere. And that's another reason for discouraging noble women from going as well. Then there is the problem that a crusade is necessarily going to religious places and the clergy were a little anxious about letting menstruating women into religious places. And in the course of doing the research for this, I was reading a very interesting article where the scholar had studied this in some depth and had some uh, fairly gory descriptions of clergy complaining about this woman came into our church and bled all over the altar steps. And you think, yeah, that would be a problem. If she has a baby and she survives childbirth, or maybe she had to take the children with her, she has the children to look after, uh, so they probably need to be carried. This will restrict her movements. Although the children can also be got in to help with the digging and the throwing stones and that sort of thing. But this is another restriction on the woman's mobility. It means that she's less mobile, perhaps, than the male crusaders. And if her husband or other men folk die, she may be left without resources and in need of somebody else to take her into their household so that she can continue to eat and have shelter. However, pious women did get the support of the clergy. And uh, if she is a pious woman who's clearly there to pray and to visit the holy places, and she's shown respect to people as that people like to be shown respect to, she probably would get the support of the local clergy and they probably would give help her whatever might go wrong. How much do we really know about what women did in the Crusades? Where do they actually pop up in the historical record? Most of the women who are on Crusade are simply um, grouped in with everybody else under the word people, which is gens in medieval Latin. And so they don't stand out, they're just the group. And all too often, modern translators have translated this simply as men, which is not helpful. While the word men can mean people, most modern readers take it to mean simply males. And so you lose the fact they're also women in the group, whereas Latin, which is the female noun, allows there to be a mixed group of people here. Then the narratives only mention people who are prominent in the crusade army by name. And in some cases, we suspect that they've been paid to mention them by the people who commissioned the account. So in that case, you only get noble women mentioned and not always named either. And it's a problem with the 
crusade historiography at various times during the history of Western Europe has not been regarded as respectable to mention women by their names. It's quite dishonourable. So 18th and 19th century scholars were quite chary about naming women and they then tended to disappear from the record. But even contemporaries got people's names muddled up and they referred to a woman as Joanna when actually we know her name is Isabel because we've got her charters. And some scholars now are very reluctant to lose these incorrect names, which is fascinating. They think, well, you've got her charters. You know what her name was. You've got her seal with her name on it. But no, 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 because somebody you know, back in 1710 called her Joanna. She has to be Joanna forever, whatever, you know. So we do have records produced by women in terms of we're making a donation to this monastery or to this nunnery before we go on crusade. They're making their wills. They're included in wills. You get names and you can see them at one moment, but just as a snapshot. Then you have the anecdotes. I've mentioned a few of them already, where women are mentioned as being involved. So the lady whose body is buried in the ditch. It's a crusader camp story, which has been circulating. And the name, most people would never know what her name was. And some of these women, we also suspect are really generic characters. When Richard the Lionheart on the Third Crusade says that the only women who are allowed to accompany the army are the laundresses. He doesn't name the laundresses. And then occasionally when someone has got back from the East and they make a donation to a church or they're petitioning the Pope for something in connection with their crusade or their pilgrimage, because pilgrimage and crusade, they use the same words to describe them. Um, they, they will say they were on this expedition, so we know where they were, but we don't actually know what they were doing. So... If we think about coming to the end of the Crusades, people returning home, I think in your book you write about women being important in... Would creating a legacy be the right way to say it? I think that would be a good word to use because particularly if the Crusader has died, somebody must commemorate them. If the body is returned or part of the body is returned to the West, then the Women of the household are always responsible for caring for the dead, so it's their job to see that it's properly buried and properly commemorated. And sometimes when a very fine monument has been set up in commemoration of a crusader, we can tell that it's his wife, either because it actually states that his wife or his daughter has set this up. And sometimes we have um, evidence in terms of charter evidence or letters to say that so-and-so has commissioned so-and-so to produce this thing and so we know that it's the wife or the daughter who produced it. So you have a lovely tomb with various um, symbols on it to show how pious this crusader was. Um, they're pious simply by definition of having been a crusader, gone out to the east, possibly returned um, possibly uh, possibly returned alive, possibly returned dead, possibly returned alive but died shortly afterwards due to something that they c contracted or the sufferings that they'd had on the, on the crusade. Interestingly, the women who go on crusade didn't seem to commemorate that on their own tombs. It seems to be part and parcel of their general piety. So, for example, we know Berengaria of Navarre went on crusade because she was with Richard the Lionheart. But her tomb shows a woman lying there with her book. And presumably it's a Bible. It might have saint relics in it. It doesn't have any obvious connection with the crusade. 
although it can be quite difficult to decide what symbolism on a tomb might be related to the crusade. Um, Eleanor of Castile, Edward I's first wife, and she was obviously from Castile. Castile has a great tradition of fighting against the Moors and the Muslims of Spain. And on her tomb, Eleanor has the symbol of Castile on her clothing, the castles. So she's linking herself to this great, her own nation, but it is also a crusading nation. Just by being a member of the Castilian dynasty, she is involved in the war against Islam. And then elsewhere, there were, women might commemorate sculptures. We, again, usually speculate as to whether it's the woman of the family who's, commemor who's producing this commemoration. But then the question would be, who else would it be if everybody else is dead? There's only his wife or his mother or his daughter left to do it. So to wrap us up, I've got one final question for you. And that would be, how intrinsic would you say women to the Crusades as in general? Although they don't have the limelight, they are utterly there. <laughs> they are intrinsic. The Crusades could not have happened without their support. After all, women form approximately 50% of the population, sometimes slightly more, slightly, sometimes slightly less. And if they hadn't been there supporting the combatants sometimes having to take up some sort of weapon themselves, supporting them with prayer and resources and encourage them to go and praying for them and telling them that telling the people actually went onto the battle line that this was what God wanted for them, then the Crusades simply wouldn't have been able to happen. It would be an entirely false impression to think that the Crusades were entirely a male undertaking. If you just look at the people who are coming towards you in the battle line, those are men. But behind the scenes are all the women, whether it be the female noble commander who is sending the troops in. But as I say, it's very unlikely she's actually leading them herself in the field because she's far too valuable to risk on the battlefield. Um, or it's the wife patiently winding up the bandages for when her husband gets back or the laundress or the, the, the young ladies filling in the ditches at the back or digging the ditches at the back or back at home praying or running the family estates and fighting off legal challenges. It's amazing how many legal challenges appeared to attack crusaders' claims to their land as soon as the crusaders are gone. And so the, the women are doing all these things without which crusading couldn't happen. That was Helen Nicholson, Professor Emerita at Cardiff University. Her book, Women and the Crusades, is out now. You can also hear more from Helen by tuning in to our Everything You Wanted to Know episode on the Knights Templar. Just search for Knights Templar in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? 
You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.